If you want to understand a culture, you should start by learning about its food. That's what Untextbook producer Grace Davis thinks. I think sort of what we talk about at Untextbook, so much of it is that understanding history can help us know how to do things differently in the future and how to go forward. And I think the same is very true for food because it's so important and it's something that everyone needs and everyone has a relationship to food. It's unifying forces and it's dividing forces can be looked at to apply not just to cuisine, but to apply to the United States more broadly. Grace found the work of the historian Paul Friedman, who wrote American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. In the book, Professor Friedman argues that American food isn't so much about a particular set of ingredients or cooking style. Instead, he argues that it comes down to three characteristics, regionality, standardization, and variety. What Paul Friedman is arguing in his book is that a cuisine can be defined not only by specific foods that we can very tangibly eat, but also these more intangible ideas and sort of this ethos of American cuisine. After the break, Grace Davis interviews Paul Friedman about the evolution of the American diet. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is on Textbook. Textbooked. Thank you so much, Professor Friedman, for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book, which I absolutely loved. Sort of a first question I was thinking about was if the story of American cuisine could be told through the lens of one particular food. And, you know, in your book, there's such an emphasis on the importance of variety in different of different foods as that relates to and defines American cuisine. Um, but one food that you've mentioned has been corn and how we could potentially tell the history of American cuisine that way. So could you speak about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I'm so glad to be here, uh, Grace. In, in, in this book, American Cuisine and How It Got This Way, I was trying to talk about long-term features of American cuisine and different fashions. So there are some things like corn that go right through the history of American cuisine from the indigenous people, particularly, but not exclusively in the Southwest. There's a Pueblo civilization that seems to have lived almost entirely off of corn. And uh, you can do that without too much ill effect if you treat the corn with lime before cooking it, which preserves the niacin. Uh, and then corn uh, becomes the staple of the colonists in New England because wheat doesn't grow well there. It becomes the staple of Southern sharecroppers, slaves uh, in the form of cornbread and various kinds of pancakes, uh, corn pone, and becomes identified with summer uh, in the Midwest and throughout the country and the corn on the cob. So yeah, what interests me a lot are these versatile products. So interesting. And this idea that corn has been in so many different cultures throughout the United States is really fascinating. And I think that connects to one of the topics that you used to divide up your book, which was regionality. So how food differs across the United States. And I was curious about how you decided to divide up this book with 
regionality, standardization, and variety. Sure. A lot of foreign observers and some American observers as well have said there is no such thing as American cuisine. Uh, It's either all from other countries or Americans don't really care about food or it's just fast food. And the standard answer to that is, oh, maybe there's not a national cuisine, but what about our wonderful regions? What about gumbo in uh, Louisiana or fish tacos in San Diego or clam chowder and lobster rolls in New England? And that's a legitimate response, but hides the fact or obscures the fact that regional distinctions have evaporated over time. In other words, after the Civil War, the food of Florida was really different from the food of New Hampshire. Uh, Now, you know, not only do they have the same fast food chains, uh, not only do they both have, you know, restaurants like Applebee's uh, or Friendly's, but if you went inside a supermarket, you wouldn't know what state you were in. Parenthetically, you would know the income level of the shoppers because a Whole Foods is very different from a market in a poorer neighborhood. So, yeah, regionality is still a distinction, but much less than it used to be. And it's kind of preserved in what might be thought of as tourist items, like the things I just mentioned. People in New England don't routinely eat clam chowder or Boston baked beans uh, anymore. And the people lining up for lobster rolls in Maine are mostly not people from Maine. So regionality is the victim of standardization. Standardization meaning, uh, you know, the homogeneity I just mentioned about supermarkets or, you know, the way in which fashions for food are national. Everybody eats fajitas. Uh, You know, it's no longer like a Texas thing. Everybody eats bagels. Um, It's not something that you have to go to New York for. Everybody eats sourdough bread. It used to be that um, in the San Francisco airport, they sold sourdough bread on the assumption that you'd A, want it as a souvenir, and B, not be able to get it wherever your home was. So variety is the one of those three that would seem to contradict what I just said. Uh, But the variety is not variety of regions, but the variety of brand name products or within brand name products. So, you know, Tropicana orange juice, there's an original flavor, but then there's Grove Stand, some pulp, uh, no pulp, calcium added, uh, all these standard products. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I thought I was getting regular cottage cheese, but it turned out to be pineapple cottage cheese, and I just didn't see it. I thought I was getting club soda, but no, it had cranberry flavor. So the consolation for the industrial nature of the food is that it comes in many flavors. And Americans have been happy to make that trade, even if they weren't quite aware they were making it. Right. This conversation about industrialization, as you said, and standardization, it reminded me of a quote you have in your book, The Triumph of Modern Food was not simply the inevitable outcome of technological progress. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that and how that connects to this overall American ethos about cuisine. Well, Americans are not unique in liking technological progress. So 
I would not say that standardization and industrialization of the food supply advanced further in America because its technology was more advanced. So for example, things like bouillon cubes, concentrating meat products uh, were invented in Germany uh, and canning fish and things like that uh, were developed in Scandinavia or the Mediterranean. Americans embraced it more wholeheartedly, partly because of advertising, partly because it seemed modern and America was supposed to be about modernity and partly because of convenience. So the things that the Europeans tended not to embrace were, for example, in Germany, um, there never was a time when there were only a few beer companies. Every place had its own beer and still basically does. Various kinds of cold cuts, salamis or charcuterie or you know, versts, sausages in Germany are different. So Nuremberg has its own sausages and they're rather small and thin. And you can get other kinds and you can get the Nuremberg sausages outside of Nuremberg. But that is a local specialty. It's made by local butchers. And so in certain basic things like bread, beer, wine, uh, uh, meat products, they made a distinction between those which remained local and what we would call artisanal and things like soup mixes or canned vegetables, which you know they adopted as much as Americans did. The reason that Americans extended this to you know everything, and you talk to Europeans who live here, and particularly since I teach in a university, uh, European students almost always say the thing that they can't get used to is that the bread isn't very good. And of course, you know, they should have been here uh, 20, 30 years ago. Bread is infinitely better uh, than it used to be. But the reason Americans embraced things like sliced bread, which became proverbial, as in the greatest invention since sliced bread, well, I don't think people now believe that necessarily that was a great advantage. But at the time, it was convenient. Uh, you didn't have to bake your own bread, uh, and it came pre-sliced. And it was inexpensive. And that combination of convenient, labor-saving, time-saving, and inexpensive was irresistible. The role of advertising was to convince you that it was just as good as the product it replaced. These tomatoes grown to be tough enough to be able to ship. Who says they're tasteless? Uh, they're actually delicious. Or our, our canned peas taste better than so-called fresh peas. These are the kinds of advertising campaign that characterized the 20th century, basically to convince people that not only were these products convenient and inexpensive, but they tasted just as good as what, what your grandmother uh, used to make. So in your book, you reference these different foods, as you've been mentioning, and different recipes, and a lot of that comes from cookbooks. So I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit and how cookbooks have influenced the way people view American cuisine or perceptions of different food. You talk about recipes in the South that originated from enslaved peoples, but those were sort of co-opted and sort of written out of that cookbook story for a while. You also talk about different depictions of men and women in cookbooks. So I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So cookbooks are both fascinating and there are so many of them that it's a very deep uh, mine of research. They're also a little deceptive. Some cookbooks are aspirational. 
particularly now, they're beautiful, fancy cookbooks uh, that are meant to show that, you know, you know where French Laundry is and maybe have even dined there, but you're actually not going to make these recipes that take a dozen professional chefs a day or two to make. The advantage then of these community cookbooks that I used a lot in my book are that these are assembled by people, almost always women, uh, from some affinity group like a church most often or a social club. And they're supposed to be foods that people actually make all the time. They might have a little twist. They've got to be different. They can't just be off the condensed milk can. But they can't be too ambitious either because you'll be showing off and you'll be shaming your neighbors. So you can't contribute to the First Presbyterian Church of Rapid Cities um, community cookbook and have something that requires 20 ingredients, uh, four of them not found in South Dakota. I just got one of these community cookbooks called the Rolls-Royce Owners Cookbook, and it's from 1975. And it's pictures of these people's cars. So they've got, you know, classic Rolls Royces that I've never heard of from, say, the 1930s or 1950s. And then their recipes. And what's striking about them is that their recipes are really ordinary, far from what might be thought of as rich people's food. It's, you know, stuff that has cream of mushroom soup and casseroles and jello salads or, you know, jello with little fruit suspended in it. So cookbooks make an assertion. Sometimes they assert territory, like a kind of land claim. And you mentioned that at one time, African-Americans were credited with a peculiar genius for cooking. Uh, and then by the mid-20th century, they're kind of written out of Southern cooking. And somehow there's this thought that there's a Southern cooking that's white, and then there's something that could be called soul food that's for Blacks, and that they're really distinct. I, I had used the example of a very comprehensive cookbook from New Orleans uh, called the Picayune Creole Cookbook. First edition, 1903, shows uh, a stereotypic uh, African-American woman, but she is the author of this cuisine. And in fact, the introduction says that because the former slaves are now old, white housewives are going to have to learn how to cook this food. And so they see their mission, the editors of this book, as a kind of historical preservation. And uh, But 50 years later, the cover has a French chef, I mean, a white man with uh, stereotypical French mustaches and uh, a chef's hat. And the introduction talks about how Creole food came from the French and from chefs and restaurants in Paris. And there's, there's nothing is said about African-Americans. So yeah, you have to see the cookbook as a wonderful resource, uh, but as a somewhat suspect one. So I'm wondering what you think about how understanding food history and understanding specifically the history of American cuisine how can that help us achieve greater food equality, food security, food justice? So I think the strengths of American cuisine are a kind of exuberance, that non-rule bound or willingness to experiment, variety. You know, there's no place like L.A. or New York for the variety of restaurants available. 
The problem is that uh, an optimistic scenario says that, oh, well, this means that it makes Americans more tolerant. Uh, and, and there's no evidence that that's true, unfortunately. I wish it were. You can see this with Mexican food now. Uh, the same people who patronize Mexican restaurants may be uh, hardliners, uh, convinced that the border is, uh, uh, you know, some sort of uh, danger zone for uh, takeover of America and erosion of its values. In the late 19th century, Chinese restaurants were wildly popular, but nevertheless, the Chinese were the first ethnic group to be targeted, uh, beginning with the so-called Chinese Exclusion Act of 1880 that uh, prohibited most immigration from China. So the openness to culinary experimentation does not necessarily translate one-to-one into a more tolerant and open attitude. Right. Thank you. And I think um, just continuing on this conversation about industrialized food, in my episode last year with Rachel Loudon, she took the position that industrialized food has led to greater food access or food equality. And I think that that's sort of one opinion in this ongoing debate about industrialized food. And I was wondering what you think about how can our food systems be both sustainable and accessible? And does it is it that those are mutually exclusive ideas or is there a way to achieve this food accessibility and equity while also having sustainable production of food? I think ultimately, and you know, I think Rachel would, dis- I know Rachel would disagree, it's not a choice between sustainability or accessibility. The notion that the industrial of food made average nutrition much better is true, but it's true for the late 19th and maybe first two-thirds of the 20th century. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, in, in 1860, the average family spent a half of its income, at least, in the United States on food, and now it's more like 17%. Uh, but the same argument then makes it inexplicable why the, you know, number of people who experience food insecurity, that is, they don't have enough to eat on a given day, is as high as it is, 35, 40%. um, And people who are experiencing chronic nutrition in not the wealthiest country in the world anymore, but certainly one of the wealthiest, uh, uh, is quite high. So that already in this industrialized food system, with food seemingly cheap, the actual delivery of nutritional food is is very poor. And this is visible in rates of malnutrition and obesity in particular. So it's not that the industrial food system is working just great, except for that little problem about climate change. It's not working well. Some of that has to do with the limits of technology, Some of it has to do with the food industry's desire to sell value-added products uh, that often have sugar or other non-nutritional items. Some of it has to do with consumer preferences or lack of education. And uh, a lot has to do with access. It's not that people who are poor don't like fresh food, but until the recent change in legislation that gives more SNAP credits to food bought at farmers' markets than at supermarkets, 
this food was too expensive. Fresh food is a luxury for people who are living near or under the poverty line. I mean, I deny that sustainable agriculture is some kind of like East Coast, West Coast elite Democratic Party voting uh, minority. And we have to find some ways of making food sustainable, whatever those are. There, there just is not a, there's not a way of continuing to do what we're doing now. I'm curious about this concept that we've kind of been discussing and comes up in your book of, you know, why this story of American cuisine is important. And perhaps it's because American cuisine can be viewed or interpreted as a microcosm of this country as a whole. And do you think that that's part of what makes it different from other cuisines? Would you say that that's maybe not true of the cuisines of other countries? Or what would you say in response to that question? I think American cuisine has for a long time, I mean, forever, been dismissed as laughable by the rest of the world. But in fact, in the last 20 years particularly, the rest of the world has come to look a lot like the United States in terms of cuisine. It's not that it has adapted things that Americans like necessarily, but it has become eclectic. And by that, I mean, Americans will say, oh, I don't want to have Japanese I don't want to go to a Japanese restaurant. I just had uh, a Japanese meal yesterday. Uh, let's go to a Thai restaurant instead. Uh, I lived in, in uh, Catalonia for a year. I lived with a family. And nobody ever said, oh, well, let's have Catalan food. Or they would not say, you know, I'm tired of Catalan food. Let's have Chinese food instead. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't something where you had a choice. It's like the most American aspect of global cuisine is experimentation. And that experimentation may be within a world defined by America, tacos, paninis, pizza, sushi, and so forth. But you've broken out of the notion that um, your grandmother is the person who defines what the traditions of uh, dining and cuisine are. Thank you so much. Paul Friedman is the author of American Cuisine and How It Got This Way. Professor Friedman, where can people find more of your work? Really, just uh, uh, look me up on the internet. I'm the author of a book called 10 Restaurants That Changed America, and I edited a book called Food, The History of Taste, available from the usual sources. I also, although I don't have a particularly lively webpage at Yale University where I teach, if you uh, look up the history department, there's a little kind of sketch uh, of my career. Dr. Paul Friedman is a professor of history at Yale University. Grace Davis is a high school senior in New York. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Edman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.